Insurers are facing a yield-starved environment and looking for places to drive investment income. Some investors are looking at esoteric ABS as a solid risk-adjusted alternative. We're joined by Paul Norris of Conning today to talk about this subject. Paul, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here, Stuart. Thank you, and uh, thanks for the reminder. Stuart Foley, I'll be your host. So, Paul, can you just give us a quick rundown of your background? That'd probably be a good place to start. Sure thing. I am, uh, again, Paul Norris. I'm the head of securitized assets at Conning. Spent uh, many years in the beginning of my career at Fannie Mae, and then moved on to a hedge fund for a while before I started at Conning. And I should... uh, I guess, remind everyone in terms of conning who we are, if if that's okay, Stuart. Absolutely. You know, conning is a leading global investment management firm. We've got a long history of of serving the insurance industry. We're actually founded in 1912, and we've expanded quite a bit since 1912 in that we've got investment centers in Asia, Europe, and uh, North America. So we're out there helping global insurers find solutions to their problems and helping them manage their assets. I mean, your assets, if you looked at your total AUM, insurance is the majority of those assets. Is that fair? That's correct. I think as of right now, we have around 200 billion. Majority is focused on insurers, whether it be life or PNC and other types of insurers. So let's talk about, and I mean, people who listen to these podcasts are industry people. So No need to worry about jargon and getting in the weeds here. So everybody knows what ABS is. The term esoteric ABS tells me that these are unusual collateral types, right? So what's the difference between traditional ABS and what we're calling esoteric ABS? That's a great starting point, Stuart. I would say, at least in terms of how we look at it at Conning, we're going to break it out into two categories, really, to start. And we're going to talk about commercial and then consumer esoteric ABS. And and you mentioned before, you know, esoteric ABS is really similar to the plain vanilla sectors like credit cards or autos, really same concept, same type of structures. The really big difference in esoteric is that these assets or these deals are issued less frequently. So it's not going to be on a regular cycle like a large auto issuer that's coming every month with a billion dollar deal. That's not this. The deals are really smaller deal sizes, typically, you know, 500 million, and they're backed by less mainstream loans or assets in terms of what's driving these deals. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. On the commercial side, you know, we can think of examples like aircraft, shipping containers, rail car boxes, and those are typically the equipment contributed by the issuer, which is usually a large leasing company such as there's a couple of big names out there in terms of containers or aircraft. And I'll just mention in terms of commercial, one of the reasons we're really fond of this asset class is these are mission critical assets for the firms that are using these assets. So in other words, they can't survive without these assets. They can't make money without these assets. So that's why we're a big fan. And then quickly on the other side is consumer And for us on the consumer side, these are loans that are backed by things like timeshare or unsecured consumer loans or something called PACE, which is really property assessed clean energy. And and what does that mean? That means like solar panels, clean energy windows, et cetera, that, you know, help someone in their home 
basically be more energy efficient. And, I, you know, that's that's kind of how we define it. So when we talk about assets backing ABS and you just named several classes, right? When we talk about shipping containers, you know, we're all familiar with used car market right now is crazy hot. Housing market's hot. But I don't know anything about the shipping container market. It's not like there's an active market for it, right? So what affects the value of some of this, what I would call sort of, well, it's esoteric collateral, but it's also not something that's a household term. Right. I mean, that's a great question. What I would say is what's funny about the market, you may not know about containers or container boxes, but they're just as hot as used cars for very similar reasons. What's interesting about containers and just to frame it up for people, you know, these are the the 40 foot or 20 foot boxes you'll see on the picture of a container ship in port or uh, when you're driving down 95 in New Jersey, where you see all those tractor trailers with those container boxes on them. But interestingly enough, what's fascinating to us about containers is that where they're made is actually in Wuhan, China. And so in the beginning of the pandemic, that really impacted containers because the ability to create and make containers was basically stopped because of COVID and because it was in Wuhan. Then Wuhan got up and running and then supply was still limited, but demand has really outstripped supply in terms of the ability to make these containers. And so what we've seen is really a skyrocketing, just like you talked about used cars, we've seen a skyrocketing of value in some of these container boxes and also what it costs to really reserve a box on a container ship. And so these numbers are, are quite frightening, but in terms of, I don't mean frightening in that it's it's scary, but the amount of you know cost increase over the last six months, it's been astronomical. So we've seen basically the price of to reserve a cargo, a 40 foot container has moved up to, to $10,000 per container, which is you know, almost two and a half times what we saw pre-pandemic. So the value of these actual container boxes has also increased to a much higher value. And really it comes down to the, the fact that everything ships out of China. We don't have enough cargo boxes, containers to go on the ships. And then even the ships, we don't have enough ships. And I think a great example is I read somewhere that Home Depot has actually bought their own ship to put their own containers on those ships. So it's just like used cars. It's just like housing. There's a shortage of everything with this just huge demand. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we're just on a personal note, we're decking material. There's something called Trex, right? And it's just months to get it, right? It's just, and I think it's just every which way, there's shortages every which way. So a lot has transpired since the financial crisis in terms of investor protections, right? Can you walk us through some of the significant changes that may impact this asset class? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question, a great point. You know, one of the things that we saw really in the great financial crisis was that if you did a compare and contrast versus asset-backed securities, esoteric asset-backed securities versus say non-agency mortgages or commercial mortgages, really what we saw is that there was little to no losses on any of the deals 
in asset-backed securities, especially esoteric. And even with that, what we saw coming out of the crisis was increased structural protections. So for us, that's one of the reasons that we really love the sector in that we can basically take our most stressful scenarios and put them to some of these deals and they don't break. We don't see them getting downgraded based on some of the levels. So the examples that I would share that what's changed is that, you know, I think four or five things here. So one is more credit enhancement. So each one of these deals post great financial crisis has more credit enhancement. So that's great. Number two is there's more transparency. A lot of the investors got together and and pleaded with you know the SEC and others that govern some of these issuance and asked for more transparency about the borrowers, about the container boxes, about the issuers, and and that was basically granted. The other thing is that there's much simpler structures. I remember pre-crisis, you know, you might see this is not esoteric, but you might see a commercial mortgage deal with 30 tranches. Now, you know, all these deals are really simple. They've got basically five tranches, makes a lot of sense. The other advancement I think that's really important, two more, is trace. So that is the ability to see where a transaction prices in the secondary market. So it really makes pricing more transparent. And then finally, the really big deal is that risk retention. So these deals and these issuers bringing these deals have to retain 5% in terms of the deal or in terms of equity. And one of the things we look for is someone who is basically eating their own cooking. So we really prefer issuers in esoteric that are retaining the entire equity slice as part of their business plan, which we think is really important because it aligns our interests with with their interests. So bottom line is, you know, what's exciting is that we can run our most severe stresses back to the great financial crisis and today, these assets don't suffer losses. So we're really, you know, we're really excited about that. I think you made a very good point earlier on, which is that the people who are using these assets, for the most part, it is a core piece of their business, right? This is, I mean, shipping containers, if you're in that business, you've got to have them. It's not like it's optional, right? So you kind of answered my next question. So let me just throw maybe something a little different here. You know, my fixed income geek portfolio hat goes on here and I go esoteric ABS. That's got to be a give liquidity trade, right? Which a lot of insurers have done in search of yield. How much liquidity do you see in this market compared to more mainstream ABS? Another great question. I would say in good times, liquidity, frankly, is the same as these other asset classes. And the example I would use is, of course, it might have a little bit of a different bid offer spread. So whereas credit cards, let's just make a number up, might have one to two basis points. You know, these might be five basis points, 10 basis points, depending. But the reality is, you know, Stuart, if you called me up and said, hey, Paul, like, uh, I really need to raise some capital and I need to sell this bond, we could put that out on a BWIC uh, this morning and sell the bond within a half hour. So that in terms of liquidity and able to like buy and sell, I think is highly liquid. The bid offer spread may, you know, be dependent on the underlying asset class, but it's not going to be more than 10 basis points in a regular market. The other thing that I find really interesting is going back to the COVID crisis, when spreads really widened out, I mean, liquidity on everything basically went to zero. 
So whether it was a double A or single A corporate versus an esoteric versus a non-agency mortgage, you know, liquidity was terrible for everything. So, and then it, you know, slowly started recovering. So, you know, it really depends on the market that we're in, but in our normal functioning markets, esoteric ABS has been, you know, really liquid from our experience uh, for a long time. It's interesting. I think a lot of insurance companies have had a second look at their, or third or fourth look at their need for liquidity, right? So if you're an insurer and you need to raise capital, you're probably going to look elsewhere for your liquidity, right? And then if you've got a federal home loan bank membership or line of credit options, I mean, you've got liquidity options short of, and I think you've seen insurers go down in liquidity, you know, as a result. I mean, I think that I'm on my soapbox at this point, but I think the need for liquidity is sometimes overstated, you know, given the nature of insurance companies, their cash flow positive and so forth. So, so there's been much talk about inflation. We talked about global supply chain shortages, right? On these podcasts, I've heard inflation views all over the place. So is the global supply chain issue driving the inflation pressure in your view, and and how is it affecting the esoteric ABS market? You know, all I have is the experience that we're seeing in terms of pricing. And, you know, one example is that we've used before is the uh, container pricing and the price to ship a container across the major trade routes. And what I think is, is fascinating, there's some statistics we put together in terms of you know, pricing. So some of the main routes, and I'll just use one, but one of the major routes in terms of shipping on the east-west routes is Shanghai to Rotterdam. And the annual change in terms of pricing, now it costs $11,975 to ship a box from Shanghai to Rotterdam. That is 578% increase over the last year. That's not a typo. That's not a misstatement. You know, one that's probably important to us, which isn't as bad, but is Shanghai to New York is up 249%. And that costs $11,180 per box. Point being is that this, of course, has to do with what we talked about before. And that's the overwhelming demand on the reopening of the world economy, combined with insatiable appetite for goods that, you know, people want to get back out. They want to do things. You want your trucks decking. I was looking to buy a generator. I mean, it's, it's crazy how much people are looking to purchase that are shipped in these boxes. And so, you know, all I can think is that this is sustainable for a while, but then eventually the supply demand is going to even out a bit. And I think that that would make it a bit more transitory in terms of inflation. Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those deals. It's like, is the inflation sort of a bulge that's going to work itself out, right? It seems like there's a lot, a lot of demand right now, but you got to think that maybe that works its way through. So what do you think are the better opportunities for insurers in esoteric ABS now and importantly, into 2022, right? I mean, what do you think the most important factors are when you look at this market? Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty uh, broad question in terms of, I've got a lot of places to go to answer that, which I love. But what I would say is for right now, you know, number one is 
you know, the consumer's in great shape. So we think brick and mortar consumer lending is really attractive. And what I mean by brick and mortar consumer lending is where, you know, it's not a fintech in the box type of thing, but where you have to go in and, and get a consumer loan at the office or, you know, at the buildings, hence brick and mortar. And we think because the consumer is in such great shape that, you know, they're going to be in great shape for quite a while, given these transfer payments. So that's a sector that we like a lot. And then on the follow, because of the consumer being in good shape and the demand that you and I have talked about, we think certain aircraft bonds make a lot of sense in here because the demand for travel is ever increasing. You can see, you know, some of the headlines where some of these airlines are looking to buy up to 200 planes. So we see, you know, over the next three to five years, plane values continuing to appreciate and do really well. And then there's a couple of other sectors that we like. These are a little bit more niche, but, you know, something called triple net lease is something that's very exciting to us. Rail car is exciting to us. And then small business loans, we think are also, you know, going to do really well. And all of that is really predicated upon a consumer that is still looking to get out, buy things, do things, and continue to spend money. So we think that's a good backdrop for some of these asset classes. You know, what I would say in terms of 2022, you know, I think, I guess in terms of a uh, macro backdrop, you know, we would think that these sectors would continue to do pretty well. But as always, you know, it's really going to be dependent on a continued recovery. It's going to be contingent on Fed actions. So, you know, it's kind of like, we'll wait and see what happens in 2022 and sort of reevaluate. But, you know, for now, we like these opportunities. We think that they will continue to be the same opportunities in 2022, barring some sort of, um, what's the right word, I guess, break in this recovery. So bottom line is we're fairly confident in terms of these assets backing these deals about being very resilient. So it's not really a credit issue that we're focused on. It's more where can we find the best relative value? Yeah, I think, you know, to your point about the consumer, I know at least here in Chicagoland, I see a lot of help wanted signs out there, right? And I don't know how, you know, where you are, but there seems to be plenty of demand for jobs at this point. So it's always one of those deals, you know, goes back to, you know, 100 years ago and a guy named Peter Lynch, if you remember that name, talked about, you know, sort of putting it back to like, what kind of experiences are you having day to day that kind of back up your economic thesis, if you will? So I think that makes good sense. Since you and I are both insurance geeks, and I use that term in the most warm way ever, I'm proud to be an insurance geek. Are these bonds or are these ABS rated? Mm-hmm. And so are they rated by a nationally recognized rating agency? And where do they show up? Are they a Schedule D asset? Another great question. Yes, these are Schedule Ds. You know, they're going to show up like any other normal bond, like a corporate. One of the reasons we love these bonds is, or this asset class is because A, it's not going to hurt risk-based capital. The other reason that we like these bonds and when we're kind of geeking out on our insurance clients is that We also do a lot of stress testing in terms of ratings downgrade. And so one of the things we're very proud of is that when we buy these bonds, we're also considering what's the rating volatility going to be on these asset classes. So 
you know, for buying a single A or a triple B bond. And there's a fear that it's going to get downgraded to below investment grade. We absolutely want to consider that for our insurance clients so as not to impair their risk-based capital. And that's one of the things that we put into our process where, frankly, we're kind of, I think there's one of those uh, good sayings, but uh, begin with the end in mind. And, you know, we're basically looking to see, okay, if trouble hits, what's been the experience on these asset classes? Do the rating agencies downgrade them to a place that's going to hurt our clients? And, And we take that into consideration. To answer the first part of your question, these are all absolutely rated typically by S&P, Moody's, Fitch, Kroll, DBRS, all the majors are here. There's usually one or two ratings on these deals. So, you know, we feel really comfortable with these asset classes, given the ones that we're focused on at least have a lot of history that we can regress and look into and see how they performed over a long period of time. So kind of winding down on my my last question here, Obviously, Conning's a leader in this space. When an insurer goes out and is considering, let's just say that they're not familiar with the ESSA class and they're looking for an esoteric ABS manager. And so without answering this part, as an insurance company, you need a manager who understands the kinds of things that you just went through, right? Ratings downgrade, impact on risk-based capital, impact on, you know, AM best rating for the insurance company, all of those things, which is are really important. But with regard to just the asset class, if you don't know anything about it, what should an insurer be looking for in a manager of this asset class? Well, first, Stuart, they should look no further than Connie. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, listen, that was that that was an underhanded that was an underhanded pitch there, right? Okay. Oh, uh, anyway, thank you. Um, well, no, what I would say is, in a dispassionate manner, if you're looking for a manager, what you're looking for is someone who has the experience and the data. And what I mean by that is, a lot of these esoteric asset classes are not going to have data like a regular auto deal or a regular credit card deal. So it's really incumbent on the manager to have gone out, found the data, put it in a database, accumulate the data, have a history of the data. And I think that's really important. And the other thing is developing proprietary models, which of course we've done because there's no yield book, there's no readily made model where you just go in and use a service that someone has provided to analyze these things. So for me, that's the really important part of being involved in this sector. Has the manager spent the money to build out the models, to get the data, to develop and look at the history of each and every one of these asset classes? And then do they have the people that have done this for a long time? And you know, are they really entrenched into the sector? So just to geek out a little further, your models are proprietary and you built them, right? Yeah, and, that, that's right. Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, as an example, I mean, there's, you know, we spent a lot of time about, you know, five years ago, really getting together with our quant team, as well as our tech team and our analysts to build out something that's proprietary for us. So, you know, we run every single deal every month through our models. And we're basically stress testing them every single month. 
and we're coming up with a credit score while at the same time we're sending these out to clients if they want them every single month. And, you know, these are built based on the history that we have from getting this data and we're able to build out stress tests as well as default curves and timelines, et cetera, for each of these asset classes, which I think is really important. You just don't want to step into a market where you really are a stranger and you don't have a real feeling or understanding of the market. And, and that's what I mean by having you know historical data and feel. I got to think that your investors take a lot of comfort in that level of transparency to get those reports every month to see that work being done. Uh, my final question is one that there's no way to prepare for. So here we go. I want to take you back to a day that I know you remember. And that's the day that you graduated from your undergraduate institution. So whatever festivities may have occurred the evening before, you are bright-eyed and bushy-tailed in your cap and gown, raring to go. So there you are, you wait, 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 they finally call your name, you go up the stairs, across the stage, you get a quick handshake and a photo opportunity as they hand you your diploma. The crowd's going bananas, Paul, they're going crazy, and you walk off the stage, down the stairs, and at the bottom of the steps, you run in to Paul Norris today, what do you tell your 21-year-old self? Wow. <laughs> um, what do I tell my, well, I tell my 21-year-old self that, uh, you know, get ready to enjoy life, but work hard, always, uh, always be fair, and treat people well. And if you do those things, I think you're, you're going to go pretty far. And don't plan ahead too much because, as Mike Tyson said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face, and you're definitely going to get punched in the face. So just get up and keep going. I love it. That's great advice. Paul Norris on Esoteric ABS at Conning. Paul, thanks for being on. Thank you, Stuart. This is really fun. It's good times. I really appreciate our audience listening. If you have ideas for podcasts, please email us at podcast at insuranceaum.com. My name's Stuart Foley, and this is the Insurance AUM Journal Podcast. Mm -hmm.